God, you knew we would be here before there was time. Lord, you are all-knowing and you are outside of time. You're timeless, you're spaceless, you're immaterial. God, you saw all of these things. And so, Lord, you, you knew that we would be here tonight. And, Lord, I just ask that we would be a part of your program. Lord, that we would be dialed into what you're going to say, that our hearts would be soil that is soft. And, Lord, I, I just it keeps echoing in my mind, Jesus, what you spoke to the churches in Revelation. Lord, let he who has ears to hear, Lord, hear what your spirit is saying. And so, God, open our ears. Open our hearts. Let us receive from you. And, Lord, just remove from my mouth anything that's unhelpful. Lord, allow everything that is said to engage us with you. Speak through me, Lord. This is something that I, I cannot do under my own power. Lord, fill me with your spirit and allow us to engage with you tonight. Impact us, Lord. Change us. Refresh us with words that we may have heard before. Let them fall on our ears as if it were for the first time. Lord, overwhelm us with your presence tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us understand there's no shortage of beliefs offered to us in this world. Religious beliefs, ideas, opinions. Facebook is full of opinions. You know, and, and so the world is full of ideas and beliefs and things for us to look at. And to do a study, even of just religious practices throughout the history of mankind, um, you would run out of years before you ran out of material to study. Uh, you would run out of time just because there have been so many things that have been taught throughout the ages. And every generation of biblical triune God-fearing people has had other opinions or other options on the table to compare their beliefs to. Um, we've had all these other opinions and beliefs to set up our beliefs to and say, this is what my belief system is versus this, and this is what I believe. And, and the whole basis of what we believe is what I define that as, Bible-believing, triune God-worshiping Christians. Uh, and the reason I say it like that is because a lot of times we have to use qualifiers because someone walks up to you and says, I'm a Christian. What kind? <laughs> You know, like, I mean, there, there's there's so many different belief systems. It's like, are, do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God? And, and, and a number of people will say yes, but when you start reading it to them, they're like, well, I don't believe that. You're like, well, that's what the Bible says. I mean, like, then don't say you're a Bible-believing person. Say that you sort of kind of believe it unless it, it contradicts you. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Um, and we don't want to be anywhere near that. We want to be people who are submitted to what God has said, and, and, and it's not up for debate. Now, the beauty of studying through a letter like Colossians is Paul is revealing to the Colossian church um, how they're to deal with the heresy that's arising to attack their, what they believe in Christ, how they've been taught in Christ, how they've been trained up by Epaphroditus. And so he says, listen, this is what is coming at you. Let's start with the basics, and let's build on that. But when Paul starts with the basics— it's like from a guy who's had more biblical training than you can imagine. And so his basics are like 6,000 feet deep. You know, like he's like, here's, here's the foundation, but here's all the strata later. You know, like he's going down and he's, he's building up this massive, you know, foundation mass. And so he's going to equip the church to defend their Christian faith, to defend their belief in Jesus. Because remember, in this culture, belief in Jesus was very weird, to Greek culture, it was very weird. It was the weakness of the cross that confounded people. They couldn't understand how, how a Messiah, an all-powerful God, 
would die on a Roman cross. It was ridiculous to them. And to the Jews, it wasn't acceptable to them because he didn't give them the political freedom they wanted. And so to preach a crucified and risen Jewish savior, that was no small task. And so Paul is equipping them with the types of things that they needed to understand to defend their faith according to the scriptures. And it's interesting how the same things that he's teaching them equip us to do that. It equips us to defend our faith against all of the beliefs that are on the table to where we can go, no, nah, that's not real. That's not, that doesn't have a solid foundation. This isn't real because that's based on a lie. And this, you know, this is just delusion. And you can start chopping away at the other beliefs going, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But the way that we do that is understanding the God we serve. The way that we do that is standing on the foundation that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so we have to know the ground that we fight from. And I don't mean fight isn't like slapping people around. I mean like that we defend what we believe from. And so as we discussed at the beginning of our study in this letter, um, the Colossian heresy is what Paul's going to devote a lot of his time to in chapter two. But at this point, you really start to see that not only is he going to defend whatever that heresy is, it, it makes you realize that it very well could be the Gnosticism that was starting to rise in that area at the time. And the Gnostic heresy, uh, as it began to crop up in that region, um, had a lot of opinions of it wasn't trying to do away with people who believed in Jesus. It was trying to take Jesus and Christianity and pull it into the culture and make it more relevant. It was trying to make it more appealing. And so what, what the Gnosticism that Paul is, you know, whether purposefully or inadvertently aiming at and dealing with as he lays these things out, um, this passage that we're going to look at, it reveals the flaws in that belief system, but it reveals something to me as, as I studied this and as I, I prepared to share it with the church, it reveals to me so much of what we're dealing with today, so much of the deception that we see today. Because, for example, the Gnostics, um, when you think about their philosophy, and I don't want to get too much into philosophy, I'd love to discuss it, but it's just not helpful in the sermon. Um, because it's a very one-way conversation. When you think about the Gnostics' philosophy and what they believed, um, they were very dissatisfied when they considered Christianity because they called it an unrefined, simplistic religion. It was unrefined because of what it preached, and it was too simple. There have to be more steps. There have to be more steps to being pleasing to God than just Jesus and just believing in Jesus right? And so what they wanted to do was turn it into a philosophy of itself and align it with the other philosophies which were popular at the time. Now, just think about that for a second. The Gnostics wanted to turn Christianity into a philosophy, and then they wanted to align it with the other philosophies that were popular at that time. You've never seen that happen before, have you? You see, I love Ecclesiastes so much because what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes is powerful when he says, you know, there's really nothing new under the sun. There's really nothing new happening. What we've seen is happening again. And just because there's better technology nowadays doesn't mean that the sin and the lies and the deception are the same. They're the exact same thing. Satan's just using the latest technology to do it. The same kind of lust is tempting people now that tempted people thousands of years ago. The same type of pride is tempting us too. He's just using whatever the avenues are that are available to get his work done. What's interesting is how often we're not using whatever avenues are available to get God's work done. Are we going to turn those tables on the enemy? You realize that the Bible says you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Are you resisting him so that he flees? 
it's not you by the way you know it's like <laughs> it's kind of like that kid that stands and goes but there's like a big brother behind him the guy starts backing away kids like yeah you know like that's that's not it's not you you know little sprite it's it's actually you know it's the big brother behind you it's it's the spirit that's actually doing this but you resist the devil he will flee because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world so he's not going to stand against you if you if you fight back but here's the thing how often are we seeing people change what the bible teaches to conform more comfortably to the culture you take the biblical teachings, you kind of sprinkle in some culture, some society, some modern thinking. Oh, it's so outdated. Liven it up a little bit with, you know, it doesn't really say that. I read an article the other day. Oh, my goodness. It was, what's crazy is it was posted by the Twitter account C.S. Lewis Daily. And it was all about full inclusion for all types of different sin that the church is wanting to include and, and moderate churches are wanting to include Christian modernism, humanism, these types of things. And, and it's talking about full inclusion. Like it's, it's not sin. The biblical passages have been misinterpreted for all of these years. And, and I love the comment thread under this because the person who ran that account posted the article and then the comments underneath were like, C.S. Lewis is rolling over in his grave because he didn't believe this at all. They're like, how dare you post things like this that see, listen, you want to put your opinions on your own Twitter page, that's fine, but don't slap his name on it and then start putting comments or start putting articles under there. The comments were great. Start putting articles there that are saying he was okay with this stuff. He wasn't. You're misrepresenting him. And it's crazy to me how people look at biblical Christianity and go, well, that's not what it really says. I'm sorry. It says that in every language it's been translated in. Well, we need a new translation. <gasps> Gnostic. I mean, like, that's just cultish thinking. That's what it is. We need to change what it says then. Have a nice day. I'm not going down that road. Church, it is characteristic. This is what's beautiful of Christianity, that it can always produce new riches to meet a new situation. God's word is so rich. It's so deep. It's so powerful. Whatever new thing, by the way, nothing's really new. It's just a new wrapping that comes along in our world today can be handled and dealt with by the word of God. You don't have to change it. You don't have to get a new version of it. You can use the KJV, the CSB, the NIV, whatever you want. You use whatever you want. As long as it's a solid translation. Maybe not the message, but if you think about it, you can use any solid, I always pick on the message. You can use any solid biblical translation that you want so long as it is true to what God's word says. It will handle any new teaching. It will handle any new idea because, you guys, sin is still sin, and God still says sin must be cleansed. It still comes down to Jesus, and that's exactly what Paul's going to talk about. God has not left us empty-handed to face the challenges of our culture. He has not left us empty-handed, and so we should never choose to be. We should never choose to be empty-handed, as is the case with everything. It all starts with Jesus. It all starts with what we believe about him. That's where Paul starts. That's where he starts breaking down what these false religions are. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to highlight in this text, verses 15 through 20 of the first chapter of Colossians, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to talk about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. It's powerful stuff. We're getting through two whole verses tonight, and it's worth it. So Paul speaking um, from verse 14, where he said, um, well, I'll just read it to you. He reminded us of this in, in, in verse 14. He says, in him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
And now he builds off of that thought. So read with me verses 15 through 20, and we'll focus just on 15 and 16 tonight. He continues, he, Jesus, speaking of Jesus in verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. It's such a powerful scripture, you guys, such a powerful word. And so let's just focus on verses 15 and 16 tonight. I want to talk about Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You're going to have to bear with me. I get really excited. I start going into, you know, my school teaching days where I start, I just break down words and we talk about it in open groups. So I'm, I'm going to try to keep moving through this. But when we talk about scripture, the best thing to use to define scripture or to explain scripture is scripture. It's God's word because God's word confirms itself. And some of the best Bible teachers that I've had the privilege to sit under have reminded me that over and over again. You let scripture teach scripture. You let scripture explain scripture. God's word speaks to itself. It defines it more clearly and it will continue to expound upon it and agree God's word is never incongruent. There's your mathematical term of the day. It's never incongruent. It's always congruent. It always, always agrees with itself. And so looking to scripture to best define that idea, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18 says this. We'll be familiar with some of these passages. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. No one has ever seen God, but he says, but do you know how you get a look at him? Jesus, he reveals him to us. An image, we understand this about images, an image can be two things which merge into each other. It can be a representation, but if you have a representation and it's perfect enough, it can become a manifestation. An image that is perfect enough or a representation is perfect enough can become a manifestation. When Paul uses this word, um, icon is the word that's used in the Greek, icon, and you might make some connections there of icon and how we view those things. But the word icon used in the Greek here, he declares that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God. It's the most accurate picture that we have ever seen of God who is invisible. To see what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. That's why studying the Gospels is very important. Because to understand what he looks like, God himself, you look at Jesus, he perfectly represents God to men and women in a form which they can see and know and understand. You can see God, you can know God, and you can understand him by looking at Jesus, by looking at who he is. Now, here's how this applies to the region. Let's talk about immediately where Paul's speaking to, and then we'll talk about ourselves. But as we look at the region he's speaking to, Primarily, he's dealing with two people groups here in Colossae. He's going to talk to Jews, and he's going to talk to Greeks. It's very simple. You're like, well, that pretty much covers everyone, pretty much. 
But inside the church, we, there were some Jews that were in the church, but there was probably more Greeks in Colossae because it was a Gentile region. But when you're talking about this, you think about it from two different perspectives. If you're thinking about icon, that Greek word that he uses for image, it meant something to the Jews of that time. The Jews were obsessed with the wisdom of God. They're obsessed with the wisdom of God. It's why they read the Old Testament. They wanted to, to just to glean the wisdom of God. They held it in such high esteem. If you read some extracurricular, or extracurricular, extra-biblical writings, um, like the wisdom of Solomon, the word for wisdom that they use in the Greek when they translated that was icon. The word that is translated image here, the, it was translated wisdom from that book, but it was the same Greek word, icon. And the reason being is, they wanted to represent something that they saw the wisdom of God as being a reflection of his image. You see, the wisdom of God is a reflection of his character and who he is, and so they would use that same word. So when Paul uses the word icon in the Greek, he's saying this to the Jews. You search for the wisdom of God throughout the whole Old Testament. You've been looking for the wisdom of God everywhere. Jesus is the wisdom that has come bodily to us. All that you seek is in him. Paul reaches right into the Jewish mindset and says, you want wisdom? Try Jesus. <laughs> He's the ultimate example of God's wisdom. He's all of God's wisdom bodily. Now remember, this letter written in a time to where people who had actually seen Jesus walk the earth were alive still. And he's writing this letter to him saying, Jesus was the real deal. Bodily, the wisdom of God. Powerful thing to say to Jews. What does it speak to the Greeks? It's interesting because Greek people use this word as well. The word icon, the Greek word. Now, if you study Greek culture, they were obsessed with something different than wisdom. They were obsessed with the logos. They were obsessed with the word. And so when they spoke of the logos, the word or reason of God is what they were talking about. It was another Greek word. The word was something that they just obsessed over because they believed that the logos, which is the Greek word for the word, um, they, they believed that the logos created the world, that it gave sense to the universe, that it kept the stars in their place, that it put a thinking mind into human beings. And so when they would think of that, they would make that kind of connection. You know, what's interesting is if you read a little bit of extra biblical reading in the Greek period, a Hellenistic Jewish writer named Philo spoke of the Logos of God, and he said this, he called the invisible and divine Logos, which only the mind can perceive, the icon of God, image. In other words, the Jews looked to the wisdom, and they said that is the image, the character, the perfect picture of God's character, his wisdom. The Greeks would use the same word for the logos, for the word, and say that is the perfect image of who God is, is the logos, the spoken word, right? Philo's teachings had some flaws. Just by the way, if you're like, I want to know what Philo wrote, you'll get off a little bit when you read Philo because he, he basically interpreted all of Genesis allegorically. It says just all stories. It's just a bunch of things that are meant to inspire pure thoughts. And he got way, way far away and was not a sound teacher at all. And, and he basically destroyed the integrity of scripture um, by his teaching of the beginnings of how God created. Because it was all just allegory. It wasn't actually real. So what Paul is saying to the Greeks is then this. Jesus is the logos that has come to you. All that you seek is found in him. To the Jews, Jesus is the wisdom. And to the Greeks, Jesus is the word. He is all of these things. He's what you're looking for. He's what you're obsessed with. He's just the truest fulfillment of it. John chapter 1. 
just for more on the Greek side of this, because as if we need more, but it's great. Um, John chapter one, the first five verses, I want to read this to you. In the beginning was the word. Who are we talking about? Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You think John's writing to a Greek culture or what? A lot of times we're reading, they're like, why would he word it like that? Oh, because the Greeks are eating it up. They're eating it up. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that's been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The Greek word for word that John uses here, can you guess it? Logos. What's he showing them? Everything that you're looking for is Jesus. You are looking for Jesus. You are longing for Jesus. Your eyes are on the wrong thing. But your idea and what you're searching for is completely perfected in Christ. Do you think that the biblical writers understood the times they lived in? It's really interesting to look at. That's why original, I know I'm getting more, more uh, Bible class than preaching on this, but, but you understand that like this is why word studies are important because it's revealing to us how culturally savvy these guys were. Were they watering down the message? <laughs> no. Paul didn't water down anything. He took everything straight. I mean, like Paul, Paul watered down nothing in life. You're like, you're stupid. You know, like, I mean, that's just the kind of guy he is. He just hits you right in the face with stuff. You know, Peter was out of line, so I set him straight. You know, like that's how Paul operates. I love him. But, but the interesting thing about when you read the biblical writers of the New Testament, they're not watering anything down, but they get the culture they live in. They understand the words they use. They understand the mindset that they have. And so when you think about how they use their words, their phrases to reveal the truth about who Jesus is to them, how are we doing? How are we doing? It's not modernism to talk to people in their own language. It's not modernism. It's not watering down the message. You take the truths of God, God's word and you speak it to people in terms they can understand. You don't change the message, but you have to present it to them in a way that they understand. How many of us have struggled with this with teaching in the past? You know, I, I just don't feel like this is, I'm not, get, I'm not tracking with you. You know, you, you never want to be like one of those bands that was relevant for one album. You know, if, if, if I could just use an example, you want to be like the U2 of Christianity, okay? You want to appeal to like a whole broad, just generation after generation after generation. You think about that, it's like, oh, I don't even like U2. Yeah, but you know who they are. I mean, like, and so did your parents and your grandparents. Like, you, they're that old. But if you think about it, like U2's been around a long time. I'm sorry. Uh, the U2's been around a long time. And, and here's the thing. This is, this is where I, I get the deal. It's not how old they are. It's that they've been relevant in every generation. I listen to you too. You're like, Mike's preaching about you too. This is already a lost cause. No, listen. What I'm saying is this. You need to find ways to deliver the message of Christ to your generation. It doesn't matter your age. You need to understand that generation so that you can minister to them because the biblical writers got it. They were using the language of their culture. So should we. Don't let the enemy beat us at this game. Don't let the enemy beat us at using what we have in our culture now better than we do. Because there are lots of amoral things in this world. 
there are lots of things in this world that are not good or bad. They're just tools that God has given us to use. Are we using them for good? Are we using them to preach the gospel to people? All of that explanation about icon and logos, that wasn't to throw Greek words at you. It's to make that point. John, Paul, Peter, James, it mattered for them to make the truth of Jesus clear to their culture, and so it should matter to us. It should matter to us. Our mission as a church is to reveal to our cities that Jesus is all they're seeking for, that Jesus is the one who can satisfy their longing. One more thing. And this is just on the word image. <laughs> we'll move faster up this, I promise. When the word image is spoken, where was it spoken first in the Bible? Where is it translated, the word translated image, the first time in the Bible? If you're thinking early, you're correct. Liz, where am I thinking? Genesis, good. And not only Genesis, but Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. You're going to know this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Hold the phone. We're not just talking about Jesus here. Think about this. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image, he created him in the image of God. Do you think he's trying to get that across to us? He repeats it again. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Did we get through on the second one? He created them male and female. He's talking about all of mankind created in the image of God. Men and women were created to be nothing less than the image of God himself. Image bearers of a holy God. And we accomplished it until we sinned. When sin entered, everything changed. Human beings were perfect before then. Now we understand what it's like to be tainted and broken because we misrepresent him in sin. And so Paul says, do you know, want to know where our reset button is? Because the first Adam, he failed. Do you want to know who actually accomplished all of this? As other parts of scripture refer to the second Adam, in other words, the second perfect one, but who actually did it right. Because God had to do it himself. God's like, nope, you messed it up. I'm going to do it myself. You know, and he did. Became human, set aside all of his dignity, none of his deity, and lived a perfect life. He shows you not only what God is, he also shows you what you were meant to be. Jesus shows us what we can go back what we look back at before sin in the garden. He says, that's who you were meant to be. Jesus is the picture, not only of, of who God is, but of who you were created to be in that perfection. One theologian said this, we must therefore beware of seeking him elsewhere for everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. Everything that would set itself off as a representation of God, apart from Jesus, he is the only one who can do that. Anything that sets itself off as a representation of God is an idol besides him. That makes things very simplistic. No one of the Gnostics didn't like it. They wanted to philosophize. They wanted to hear some new kind of teaching. They wanted to sit up, you know, on Mars Hill in Athens and hear all the latest things. And Paul gets up there and teaches them what? I saw a shrine you guys have over here. This is Paul you know, in modern day me paraphrase. I saw this little thing that you guys have over there that, uh, you know, shrine to the unknown God. Yeah, I know him. It's Jesus. 
He died on a cross for your sin and rose again on the third day. You want to drop a live snake into a Greek party? Poof, resurrection. What? This is crazy. Tell us more. You know, like they want to hear all these kind of wild things. Not because they actually wanted to hear truth. They just like something new. And that's weird. That's crazy. That's wild. But Paul spoke the truth that day. Anything else is an idol. Anything else that you worship isn't true. He is the image of the invisible God. Everything that you long to be, you can see in Christ. Powerful stuff for one statement. I'm not even through verse 15 yet. (laughs) He is the firstborn over all creation. Now you're seeing it, right? You're like, well, this is loaded. The firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth The visible, the invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I love the New Living Translation translation of this verse because when it talks, when we think about the firstborn overall creation, we can get into a time significance type thinking. Thinking of it in the way of my firstborn child is this one, right? They were born first before from my wife and I, right? And so we think of firstborn in that kind of terms. That's not what he's talking about. Because in the Bible, and there may be more than this, but I'm just going to highlight these three, the term firstborn works in three ways. One, firstborn child from a mother and a father. Second, firstborn is a title of honor that's given to God's people. I'll show you that in a minute. Thirdly, firstborn is given to the Messiah as a title of his Messiahship. I'll show you in the Old Testament where this is in a second. Where am I going with this? Firstborn is not a time-sensitive thing. Don't get caught up there. For a lot of people go, then Jesus was born from God and Holy Mother. What? Like, what are you talking about? That's, you just made up a character. You literally made up a character. Like, I mean, that's not what he's talking about. We have to understand what we're reading. And Paul's saying, you know this because it's in the scriptures. People should get this. Let me show you why. And this is where the NLT version comes in. Paul's literally saying this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. In other words, he's the first because he wasn't created. Make sense? Creation came from him. It started with him. But he holds this title of firstborn. Here's why. Number one, the first reason that I say that this is a title of honors from Exodus 4.22 and there are other passages, but I'll just use this one for an example. Exodus 4.22 says this, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Is he talking about a child that's been born from him? No, it's a position of honor. Why? Because the nation of Israel is the child on whom God's favor rests. That is the one that he has chosen to be a light to the nations. Remember that. That was Israel's purpose. They were to come out of slavery. Oh, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. I can feel it. They were to come out of slavery, be delivered into their promised land by God for his glory to be a light to the nations around them. So that the nations around the look and say, what a powerful God, we need him. And Israel would say, yes, come. Yes, come and believe, follow our God. He is great. He is powerful. What did they do? They conformed to the world. They followed the world's idols. They fell into sin and, and idolatry and horrible practices, they defaced the image of God. But God had chosen them, and he says, you are my firstborn son. 
The nation of Israel is the child on whom God's favor rests. It's a title of honor. Now, firstborn is also title of Messiah. Jews recognize this. They absolutely recognize this. Psalms 89, 27 says this. I will also make him my firstborn greatest of the kings of the earth. Speaking of the Messiah, you talk to good you know, Jewish boys and girls that read their, read their Old, Old Testament scriptures, they're going to say prophecy of the Messiah right there. Because the terminology firstborn was also given to the Messiah as a sign of his Messiahship. It's interesting to do word studies in the Bible for firstborn and to see it used in different ways. And the reason I'm making a point out of that is sometimes we trip up on these things and people will start twisting these words and they're going to take them out of context and try and teach you something cultish and something different. We need to know what the Bible says. Let scripture interpret scripture. Read the Old Testament so that you understand the new. These things all connect. This is our job, church. We need to know these things because we have to be able to defend our faith. We have to be able to look at Scripture and go, no, this is what it says. Don't you see that connecting here very clearly? And be able to defend it. I would love to get into Romans 8, 29. I'm going to read it to you in a minute, but like just talking about how Paul talks about the firstborn and the image of God, both in that passage and that one verse, you'll hear it in a minute. I'm not going to talk about it, I promise. That's homework. You guys read it. Homework for next week. I, I did this the first service. I was like, it's your homework. Read Romans 8, 20. I was like, actually, read all of Romans 8. Read all of Romans. Just read the whole Bible by next week and then tell me how it went. Like, just, just call in sick and, and just read your Bible all week. It's not bad advice. but So you're like, actually, I'm already off anyway. Great. You're chalk free. You can just do whatever you want. For everything was created by him, verse 16, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The agent of creation was no secondary delegate. Okay? It wasn't a secondary delegate. It wasn't God saying, hey, you, come here, I got a job for you. Do you want you to create all this stuff? I'll give you my power. Go. Jesus was the one who did it. Jesus was the one who created. Whether you can see it or it remains unseen, whether it's a spiritual power like an angel or whether it's something physical like the chair, you know, it's, it's everything. He created everything, matter, spirit, all of it. He is the creator of all things. And the reason this is important is because the Gnostics really got caught up on stuff like this and false religions would as well. They were worshiping spirits, powers, angels, anything that was spiritual, anything that had any type of power to it. And he says this, if you're looking for the ultimate power, all of these things were made by him. Jesus is the answer to your longing for that kind of authority, that kind of supreme leadership, that kind of supreme power. It's only Jesus. He created all of it. Paul takes all the powers and authorities that we can see and not see and puts them under Jesus. Created through him and for him. What's interesting about this is how often you know, we, we forget the spiritual power and the spiritual things that are going on around us. I, you know, I, and I, I always think of Elisha, you know, when and BJ shared this with, um, with our guys group for our first men's breakfast, you know, when you think about Elisha and, and his servant, you know, and, you know, Elisha's servant goes out for some water and behold, there's an army around their house, you know, huh, Elisha, we have a problem. And Elisha's like, Again, this is the Mike paraphrase. They have the problem. <laughs> Servant, why? Lord, just open his eyes. And he opens his eyes. God does it. Don't you wish God would just open our eyes right now? We probably need a cleanup on aisle five 
I mean, like, it, it, if you could just see, <laughs> if you could just see what's going on spiritually right now, ha, ho, ho, you know, like, it'd be pretty cool to see the spiritual powers that were at work all around us. I apologize for the aisle five reference, but, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, y- there's so much going on and Jesus is over all of it. Christ is over all of it. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear anything because we belong to the king. We are sons and daughters of God. Because falling under that same designation of created through him and for him, did you notice that verse? All things have been created through him and for him. I don't know if you realize that, but that's that's all of us. It's all of us, you guys. We were created by him and for him. You were made for him. We were individually knit together by Jesus. He has made us and has, as Paul said prior in this chapter, redeemed us by forgiving our sin. He not only made us, when we messed it up, he fixed it. We just have to receive it and live it. All because of him. What's crazy is not only has Jesus made us and saved us, he's doing something else that we'll really look at more in depth next week, and he's preserving us. He's maintaining us. You're like, I maintain me takes a lot to make this look like this <laughs> takes even more to keep your matter together right scientists are still trying to figure that out what is holding all of this together <laughs> jesus says so right here he is literally holding you together right now it would get really messy if he let go and and i just think that that's important for us to remember because if he's holding you together a don't take that don't take that from him. Don't pretend like you can take that power from him. And two, why? Why are you here? Why is he holding you together? Why are you still here? Because you have a purpose in life. You have a purpose here. He's not done with you yet. Because now that he's saved us, he wants to mold us into his image. Here's Romans uh, 8.29 again. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Powerful words, considering what we studied. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Boy, scripture really teaches scripture, doesn't it? Paul knows how to expound. These concepts are clear. These things are easy. And here's the thing. Don't let the world confuse or muddy the water. Keep it simple. Keep it clear. Jesus made you, saved you, and preserves you. He is, as the old song says, your all in all. He is our all in all. He shows you not only what God is, he also shows you what you were meant to be. As a closing thought, I can't think of a better way to end this passage um, than by... Uh, reading the end of Romans chapter 11 because of just what Paul says there. And it, it's it's rightly titled in your Bible, a hymn of praise. You know, Paul does this from time to time as he wrote. Um, he'd just be writing about the things of God as the Spirit speaking to him, and he would just erupt into praise and start just either praying or praising God right on the spot. Never a bad time to do that, by the way. The Lord leads you to do it. Do it. You won't regret it. 
you know, but just, he just pours out. And so I want to do this as we, um, I'm going to have the worship team come up and they're going to hit the lights and, and start playing a little bit, but I just want to read this to you guys. But as, as they come up and get ready, um, I, I would, I want to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want you to just listen to what he says and consider it in light of what we've heard and thinking about who Jesus is, how he's working in our lives and how he has created us and how he's saved us from our sin and how he's preserving us as we'll see when we continue our study. Um, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. This is Romans 11 verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Lord, may those be the words from our heart erupting in praise to you, God, because of who you are. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so powerful. We thank you that the deeper we look, the more we see. And it is fathomless. God, we can never plunge to the depths of your wisdom. Lord, it's what your people were looking for, and, and you were right there in front of them. God, we can never fully understand the power of the word. Yet, Jesus, we understand that you are the word. And that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. God, if we seek after the word that changes, that teaches, that gives us knowledge and, and understanding, it's you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just settle into this place tonight of worship as we recognize, Jesus, that you are everything that we need. You're everything we've been looking for. We don't have to validate ourselves with our accomplishments. We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. We can just be satisfied in who you say we are. And for every person in that room, that son, that's daughter that's a child and so Lord we thank you for our inheritance and we thank you for your blessing on us and we thank you for a time just to worship you to celebrate who you are Lord how much we love you